television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edmund Davis and joining me this week through the Miracle of Satellite Technology, a very faulty miracle as it is today, uh, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Oh, I'm grand, thanks Ed. It's nice to chat to you as ever and do not worry, uh, technology is there to connect us and frustrate us all at once. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, we're doing grand. Um, I have just about recovered from the physical ills of celebrating Scotland's nil-nil draw with England. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the gloating uh, will continue for a long time. (laughs) I'd like to apologise to England for my... uh, I was swearing a lot throughout the whole thing, and particularly at the end. I am not a good loser or a good drawer, it turns out, Ed. Um, I got quite caught up in it. So yes, it is it is football fever where I am. And you know what? It's been really nice to have something that it's just, it is nice to see everyone kind of rallying together. I've mm-hmm. not been this into football in my life. And I think it's a huge mix of things, partly because the narrative of Scotland being in this tournament is just such a beautiful kind of underdog story and I can't get invested in that um but also I think as as of course what we've been facing as a species there is something quite spectacular to be able to do something else that we can all talk about Mm -hmm. or at least a huge swathe of uh the planet including you know even players who give you the ick because there are plenty of them <laughs> across the world, it seems. I love the little car. I'm really sad that the little car seems to not be there. I mean, it it was genuinely traumatic to watch what happened to Christian Eriksen, and I'm so glad he's okay. But I am I remain really quite angry with uh, my home broadcaster, shall we say, for not making. Um, dignified editorial calls when they should have done particularly when they're able to do that with with streakers let alone a really dire medical instance but all in all ed i'm okay thanks how are you uh yeah i'm i'm doing okay um there's no football fever over here uh, instead people have got uh, bertrand tavernier fever in in my house anyway because uh i have over the last couple of days uh been watching some of uh the films of the late bertrand tavernier on the criterion channel because uh, he passed away earlier this year kind of french filmmaker and and um and a critic uh who i had heard of and i heard of some of his movies i remember i think the one of the last times i went to the uh the showroom in sheffield on one of my my trips Back home, they had a trailer for his uh, My Journey Through French Cinema, which is kind of his equivalent to the thing Scorsese did in the 90s where he talks about the history of French cinema. They had a trailer for that on. So I'd heard of him through that and uh, a couple of his movies had kind of like permeated my uh, 
awareness over the years uh you know, things like death watch and uh in the electric mist and things like that but i'd never seen any of his movies and criterion channel to, to give you a sense of what my uh what dictates my viewing decisions every month every month on the first of the month i go to the criterion channel and look at their list of movies that are expiring that month think okay there's like 50 or 60 movies here that i haven't seen uh, I'm sure I could get through most of them if I kind of like diligently try and watch one every day and then I don't watch any of them for three weeks and then suddenly it's like, oh shit, <laughs> got to try and watch all of these now. <laughs> and, uh, and because like there's nine Bert- uh, Bertrand Tavernier movies, I thought, okay, that, that seems like a, a doable number of films and they do all sound quite interesting to me. Uh, so that's kind of what I've been doing and I've really been enjoying them. But they did illustrate something to me about French cinema that I've always kind of been aware of, but that I have never kind of like had so starkly illustrated because uh, in two of his movies, there's an actor called uh, Michel Galabru, who is um, in his second movie, uh, The Judge and the Assassin, where he plays uh, the titular assassin, a, a real life serial killer who kind of like terrorized the south of France in the uh, 1800s, late 1800s. And he's also in A Week's Vacation, where he plays this kind of like sweet, lovelorn restaurant owner who befriends slash kind of has an unrequited crush on uh, Natalie Bay's character. And they're both very good performances. He's terrific in both of them. They're very different. And so I thought, oh, I'll go on IMDb and see else, what else this guy's been in. He must have been in like other really great movies. He's such a good actor in this. And then on IMDb, he had like literally... <laughs> 300 credits <laughs> like uh maybe 299 so you know pretty close uh before passing away uh, a few years ago and it suddenly made me realize all right france makes a lot of movies they make a lot of what seem to be very terrible looking comedies that never ever see the light of day outside of france and so a lot of their reputation for kind of like a bastion of cinema is based on the fact that they <laughs> let the good stuff out because as I was scrolling through, so many of the movies that, that Michelle Galabru was in were things that were not very far away from being called like Zutelor Uer Mon Pantalon. You know, like they're all kind of that kind of like broad, dumb sex comedy that you've never ever heard of and, unless, you know, they happen to stock some of them in uh, the foreign language section of, you know, the video stores that no longer exist. So now they're even harder to find. So it kind of put into perspective something that I often see people talk about on, on Twitter, you know, the people who I follow who are way more into French cinema than I am, where they just kind of like talk about how bad French cinema is apart from particularly like in the last like two decades and me thinking, I don't know, it seems pretty healthy, you know, like you get an Olivia Assayas movie every couple of years and, <laughs> you know, and suddenly realising, oh, right, yeah, I'm getting a very, very limited view of french cinema they are really only sending their best and brightest out to the world and everything else they are they are keeping well hidden so we'll go on to the uh, news for this week and there wasn't a huge amount of, of news it was seemed like a fairly quiet one i think there's kind of like one frivolous story we want to talk about and one kind of sad story let's start with the frivolous one because um this story gave me a lot of enjoyment just from people making fun of it and the uh weird contours it ended up going in so a couple of days ago there was a report going around that the 
DC animated Harley Quinn series, which airs on HBO Max currently. I think previously it was on like the DC only streaming channel that flopped terribly. And then fortunately the show found a new audience for HBO Max and, and has been renewed for a third season, which is great because that show is super funny and, and really entertaining. But uh, apparently there were notes saying that they had to remove a scene either from one of the seasons that's already aired or from an upcoming uh, episode from when the show comes back where uh, Batman was meant to perform more sex on Catwoman and they got a note saying basically good guys don't do that um, which then prompted a lot of people making jokes about this like saying which of the various depictions of Batman over the years have would be willing to perform oral sex uh, with uh, the consensus seeming to be that Val Kilmer would be the only one that absolutely definitely would, including uh, he himself tweeting about it in those terms. And then it kind of reached its apotheosis, I think, with uh, Zack Snyder posting a what seemed to be a panel from a comic book that seemed to be Batman going down on Catwoman, but then various people have been like, I don't think this is a real panel from a real comic. <laughs> I don't think, like, it seems to be a case that Zack Snyder apparently has had this commission for this purpose, which is just uh, fantastic and very much the Zack Snyder thing to do in this situation. But, you know, similar to what you're saying about the football, it's just been quite nice to have something that's just incredibly dumb and silly and fun to kind of focus on uh, over the last couple of days. And, and the, just the jokes about this, that have been going around on Twitter have just been endlessly amusing to me as everyone really likes dunking on an incredibly stupid retrograde choice from the higher ups at DC and yeah, just being able to kind of just write silly stuff about Batman, which is nice considering that, you know, Batman hasn't exactly been silly for a while. Pun entirely intended, Ed. I'm going to dine out on this for some time. <laughs> like, and that original note, yeah, good guys don't do this, heroes don't do this. And I just felt such a sort of wave of uh, distress on behalf of all of those executives' wives. And it's just because some of the, you know, <laughs> the only sort of criticism or backlash to this is like, you can just say, we're making a kid's show. Um, mm -hmm. the most that people are going to do is maybe kiss and even then they're wearing masks it was very fun to see like I mean I just always love seeing uh, Catwoman gifts particularly Michelle Pfeiffer so I'm not, mm -hmm. like, I'm not complaining and it was especially apt this week because I think today in fact the day we're recording is like the 30th anniversary or no sorry the 29th anniversary of the release of Batman Returns so yeah there there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of Catwoman on my timeline and it's much appreciated you mean Batman Returns, the favour? Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, see, that's it. That's what we need more of. It's just, what? <laughs> like, of course, yeah, Batman, totally puritanical and all of this. And you're, the point that you make about Batman not being silly for a long time is really pertinent, I think, because there is something about how uh, sort of, how faced it's become and I remember yeah Batman Returns and like how gloriously camp it used to be and so deeply entertaining and there's nothing wrong if you do want to sort of have you know your endless gritty reboots fine I guess but also I just this makes me even more excited for uh, our pats shall we say 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. He's going to be the horniest Batman for at least a generation, I feel. The first, first, Ed. (laughs) But yeah, I think also the thing this reminded me of weirdly was, I can't remember what what it was, but there was some documentary about, maybe it was some some documentary about 70s cinema from years and years ago. Like maybe it was like some adaptation of Easy Riders Raging Bulls or something where it was talking about coming home with, you know, the Hal Ashby movie and how I think it's Jane Fonda is the lead in that movie and they were talking about how like one of the really noticeable scenes in that movie is her and uh, I think John Voight having sex and John Voight uh, forms or sex on her and the camera kind of like lingers on her face and it's very much about like a woman's pleasure in that moment and it's talking about how that was like a very um startling thing at the time and that was very much like something that you know you didn't see in a lot of american movies because they've been so puritanical for so long and even you know as things started to loosen up in the 60s and 70s like that was still not something that you saw very often in like mainstream american movies and like at the time that i was watching that this would have been like i don't know 2006 2007 i even remember then thinking yeah it's still not something you see that often um and like the only movie i can think of in recent memory, like a reasonably widely released American movie would be something like Blue Valentine, which if I remember correctly, got like a a higher rating specifically because it has a scene in which uh, Ryan Gosling uh, goes down on Michelle Williams. And like just thinking about, oh yeah, this, is, <laughs> this attitude has been around for a really, really long time. <laughs> and seeing it kind of like crop up in this particular discussion around this particular show because like the harley quinn animated series is full of like brutal violence and swearing and sex and like all this sort of stuff obviously you know within the limits you know it's not hentai but like there's definitely a show where people have sex in it and just seeing it in this discussion just like makes me think oh yeah like there is just such a a vein of conservatism around sex in american movie making that you know has you know, kind of like been chipped away at for a long time, but still feels as if it's around basically anything where a woman has a good time. (laughs) It seems to be where it decides to really draw the line. And yeah, that's, uh, doesn't seem, considering how sexless most movies are now anyway, it doesn't seem like that's going to be going away for a while. I've quit smoking, Ed, but just for the purposes of uh, our listeners, just imagine them lighting a cigarette and just, nodding very knowingly throughout this whole this whole exchange Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then the other news this week again uh much sadder news than uh batman sex stuff is uh the news that ned Beatty passed away ned Beatty, of course one of the greats one of the all-time great character actors of uh the aforementioned uh, 70s you know uh making his debut in Deliverance, which is incredible to think of, considering that became like an incredibly iconic performance from him. Uh, perhaps too iconic because uh, there were lots of unfortunate jokes around what happens to him in that movie. In that, which I found to be quite quite distasteful. Um, but you know, 
setting that aside, you know, he was in that, he was in Network, he's, uh, you know, he was in Superman. He's the sort of person that, you know, when I saw the news that he died, I was on the phone to my dad and saying, oh, no, Ned Beatty died. And my dad couldn't immediately place who Ned Beatty was. So I, like, I was able, I, like, rattled off, like, three films and immediately he was like, oh, yeah, I know who you mean. And, like, it was, you know, I mentioned, like, Superman, obviously, was a big one, but, like, the one that really clicked for him was uh, Shooter, the Mark Wahlberg movie from about 10 years ago where he plays a sniper where... uh, Ned Beatty plays like a corrupt senator, which is like a pretty pretty decent action movie, I thought, uh, and somewhat more political than you're used to from uh, American mainstream movies. But that to me was just such a such an indication of what Ned Beatty brought to to every movie he was in. Like even something like that, which was like a, like a decent movie, him showing up in it like made you think, oh, like for at least even just for a few scenes, this movie is going to be elevated because Ned Beatty just doesn't do things by half. Absolutely. I think, yeah, Deliverance is something that has obviously stuck in my mind for a long time. And I love him in Network as well. And that's entirely it. He is is such a remarkable character actor. Mm. And I think often the idea of a character actor is someone who sort of like steals the show, but it's actually, I think, the testament to that old acting adage that there's no such thing as a small part, only small yeah. actors. And Ned Beatty was definitely not a small actor. Mm. Yeah, when you when you think of even the range of the movies he was doing in the 70s, if you think about that performance in Network where he got, I think he got an Oscar nomination, he's only on screen for like eight minutes or something, doing that incredible monologue where he just comes across as the most powerful person in the world, this representation, uh, representative of, of like arcane forces that are just to dominate all of existence. And then, you know, two years later, he's bumbling around as, as Gene Hackman's uh, assistant slash henchman in Superman. Like he could do both things like so well. He, he to use a, a, a phrase that I dislike because it's been obvious, he understood the assignment you know, like every time he knew exactly what was needed for him. And yeah, he'll be, he'll be sorely missed, but uh, you, you can't go wrong by, with just picking out a Ned Beatty movie and, you know, seeing what, what he would do uh, with even the, the, the least amount of screen time. So this week we're doing another show and tell episode where each of us brings a film or TV show that we've seen recently and that uh, we want to discuss. Emily, why don't you kick us off? So I am bringing Shrill to show and tell this week, the Mm -hmm. TV series based on the book of essays by Lindy West. And it recently wrapped up its third and final season. And I had the pleasure of being able to watch it pretty much in two stints. The third season, that is, because um, BBC iPlayer has a deal with FX, I believe. Is it Hulu? I totally forgot. Uh, it's, that's the Hulu show, Hulu. I believe. So it I, can be hard to keep track of. <laughs> it's very hard to keep track. Basically, there's some kind of handshake and I get to watch it and that makes me happy. And I think it's such an interesting series to see how they've decided to end it, how mm-hmm. the show itself has grown over the three series. Because I remember watching the first one because I am, of course, a huge fan of Lindy West. I think not only is she an incredible writer, but as a public figure, pretty much, you know, her 
interviewing her troll. Um, yes, yeah. American Life and NPR, all this kind of stuff. I think it was such a watershed moment in internet culture and something that I think we could all do very well <laughs> by, by uh, revisiting often. And what she's done in terms of um, combating fat phobia and reclaiming fatness and that that is one of the central tenets of Shrill, at least the first season. But what I think is really impressive about the show is that it's really quite loyal to the book of essays. And it was interesting to hear like, oh, we've got a show commissioned, but it's based on this book of essays because Lindy West is mainly an essayist and a journalist. She hasn't, as far as I'm aware, written sort of like fiction and neither is that something that she's particularly interested in but she's been co-writing on the show and has, you know, co-writing credits on the show. And I think what, I, I just wasn't really sure what to expect because I thought, oh, is this going to be more of a sort of anthology type thing? But no, uh, there is uh, the wonderful A.D. Bryant who plays a, um, a, a Lindy Wester-like character called Annie Easton. And I like that it wasn't like as straightforward a name <laughs> they're sort of like mm -hmm. of, uh, Lindy West Annie Easton and the first series is very much Annie kind of finding her feet she's in Portland not Seattle um it's also a really rich ensemble cast Lolly Adafope as um Annie's uh, best friend and roommate Fran is a deadpan scream as I always mm -hmm. think, Lolly Adafope, like particularly in these sorts of parts that she plays on TV, her her one woman sketch show is quite different, but I absolutely love it. If you have the chance to see her live at some point in the hellscape that we we're in once we're out of it, please do. Also, John Cameron Mitchell as the sort of Dan Savage, but not quite alike editor, and the cast just gets richer as the series goes on. But it's, it follows her in her journo life and starting to find her confidence but what I think has been so valuable and what set Shrill apart from an awful lot of kind of quickly churned out feminism friendship journo series that really means I think it will endure is that Annie finds her confidence but then she also has to deal with at times possibly being too into her ego she is ambitious and driven and she is put down upon and she's continually oppressed as a fat woman in a world that wants her to be smaller in every sense and yet she is still not necessarily her own best friend and is very often her worst enemy because of her thirst and yeah her appetite for certain things is not good and I think that's what the show did so well and it's a testament to the writing and that she lives in a really rich world of, of full people and coming back to that point about the ensemble cast, um, Siobhan Firestone is like fantastically unhinged, as is um, Patty Henderson. And you just get the sense that she is one character that we're following in a world of incredibly rich, complicated people. A.D. Bryant's husband, IRL Connor O'Malley, also mm -hmm. up as a also I think unhinged seems to be my word of the day Ed but like sort of playing a character who was not unlike his uh, Vine R.I.P. 
Yeah, I was going to ask because because he often he often shows up in things, and every time I'm like, is he going to be just playing the Conor O'Malley character? It's like, yes, he is. Oh, <laughs> he's yeah. playing the Conor O'Malley character. Oh, he he's there. He he knows why he's there, and he has mm-hmm. an absolute whale of a time. Um, EM Fightmaster as well. He sort of comes in in the second series and is uh, brought to sort of the front in the third. They are absolutely incredible, and how Fran and Annie have this. It's one of the most plausible female friendships I've ever seen on screen because it's not continually undercut with the kind of, you know, again, very accurate, but quite hollow and sad kind of frenemy is frenemism, frenemism of girls. Um, But it still has the very real context of the world and the various things that make them very different. And I think there's a really nice decision, which often happens. I've seen more and more in series where kind of when you're heading up to like the penultimate episodes, there'll be a flashback episode. But I think this is particularly warranted because it seems to be more of a kind of a triumph and a love letter to these women and how they've managed to grow into themselves with each other and help each other in that way and it gives you just another little kind of aspect of them looking back as we're about to leave them and I also think this is one of the best endings to a show I've ever seen and of course I don't want to spoil anything because I still feel like it's quite recent and there's only so much that I can go into and I'm obviously just going to push you push you push you to watch Shrill um, particularly because each episode is only about 20 minutes Mm. yes love it thank you so it really doesn't take up too much of your time and it is well worth your time. It is beautifully shot. Um, I love everything about the fashion and I don't think that is shallow of me to say because it, particularly in this, it's wonderful to see like several fat women look amazing in different ways and to just have lots of different people look really great as opposed to just kind of like the the kind of uh retrograde archaic you know incredibly thin um or or kind of played for laughs which I think Lena Dunham was trying to do something very different in girls but you know a lot of Hannah's awkwardness comes from her body whereas A.D. Bryant Mm. is allowed to be a romantic lead she is allowed to be the heroine um you know not in spite of and she looks cute as fuck and I want all of the dresses and the shoes um plus her makeup is just beautiful but I honestly think this is one of the best endings of a tv show I've seen in recent years and it's up there with like catastrophe I think because so I finished reading Rachel Bloom's wonderful I want to be where the normal people are which Mm -hmm. I really recommend and she has a musical (laughs) in the middle of it that you can listen to on her website Uh, but she writes and she's talking about like writing comedy and that a sketch can't get too plotty and a sketch is essentially people trapped by the lack of change in their situation so there is something about the repetition of it and and the absurdity of it and I was like that is a wonderful insight and this is the thing when you have a show that is not fully a sitcom but not so much a kind of dramedy like it's a sitcom length it is more subtle and it has a lot to say and a lot of feeling behind it. And I guess it is kind of 
a, a more um, evolved and loving version of the show that we need now. So, you know, it was Sex and the City, then it was Girls, and now we have Shrill. Like, it's hard not to see it as a kind of, as part of that line. But I think there's something about how fairly it treats absolutely all of its characters and how Annie is not bulletproof the whole way through and that she is incredibly real and deeply sympathetic and flawed. Um, and yeah, so it's nice to, and, and, and I think it, where they've decided to end it and how they've ended it is just perfect because you want to see more, but at the same time, it's become its own thing. And I'm just really excited again to see what everyone does next because I think the whole kind of sketchy sitcominess of it is you can see characters grow, but I think once it gets to a point where they're about to change, that's when you sort of leave them. When you're mm. dealing with something that's a bit more comic in its, in its basis. Um, and I think it's been really nice to watch them grow. And I, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, I think one of the nice things about the last sort of like six or seven years, I think, of, of, of television, you know, once people really started using the term uh, peak TV and overusing it, um, including uh, myself, <laughs> like definitely a, a term that's been used on this show a lot over the time, is that I think it does create room for shows that you would find it's hard to imagine networks really taking much of a chance on, you know, 10 years ago. You could easily see Shrill being adapted if it was being adapted, you know, in, in sort of like the late aughts. You know, they would try and make it kind of like a bigger, you know, broader sitcom. You know, it, it's not the sort of thing that maybe a, a cable network would have been that interested in doing because, you know, cable networks around about that time were all about you know, kind of like gritty dramas. That's where cable was like finding most of its success and comedies on network television were obviously kind of like broader. And even if you got something that was like a little more interesting, like a, um, you know, like a, a How I Met Your Mother where, you know, it was like being kind of like structurally inventive and they were trying all these different things. Like it still had to be kind of like big and broad in a certain way. And you will find it hard to imagine a version of Shrill that, pointedly would be about you know someone with a larger body um being the central character that that wouldn't just be the be all and end all of the jokes mainly because in that time there have been like at least two sitcoms i can think of that have been on cbs where the whole point was like how oh, are leads are fat wow yeah. and <laughs> so i think the the growth of 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 networks slash sites slash apps like uh netflix and hulu is that it does kind of like provide room for those sort of things these these networks that have uh, a ton of money to kind of like throw around they'll throw them out to people who you know are massively talented and you know have interesting ideas and things they want to say and they you know maybe have something that's on a much kind of like more small intimate scale that they want to make. And so like something like Hulu is more willing to take a chance on that or on something like um, Rami or Search Party, or which I know is, you know, a different 
uh, uh, company, but you know, like those are the sort of things where you think that's kind of the the crowning achievement. I think of the last sort of like few years of television is that there these shows that come from people who maybe would struggle to make something for like a big audience are able to make something really good for a much smaller audience. Another one that I just watched the first episode of today before we started recording us, I watched the first episode of Starstruck, the Rose Matafeo Mm -hmm. series, which uh, is over here on HBO Max. And I think it's channel four in the UK, maybe. It's BBC. Uh, Oh, cool. Um, But yeah, like that's the sort of show where, you think sort of 10 years ago you would perhaps struggle to convince executives to take a chance you know oh yeah we want to make this kind of like really funny but like not particularly broad or high concept comedy like romantic comedy starring this you know new zealand comedian who's been on you know panel shows and things and and does live shows but is like the biggest name in the world uh and i think that is something that has been really cool to see like even if you know the shows don't go past one or two seasons or you know they don't kind of they they get drowned out in the kind of the constant sludge and slurry of content that gets pushed out it's just nice to know that people are out there getting those chances and i think shrill uh, might be one of those shows that i think kind of got a little bit lost over the last couple of years certainly like i remember the first season coming out and it was a big deal and it got like really nice reviews, but then by the time the second season had come out, like it seemed like everyone had moved on, uh, which uh, it, again it is a shame because I feel like it was a show that got better as it went along, and you know was already like pretty consistent. And Amy Bryant's you know kind of a star, and it's great to see her get a leading role after years of being you know the the dependable supporting player on SNL. Um, but yeah, like the the mere fact that a show like that gets to be made is is kind of a victory in and of itself. I completely agree, and I think the irony is that the show is called Shrill, and yet it is entirely about developing Grace, and mm-hmm. that it's the little show about the big girl that could. And I think the first mm-hmm. series had so much anticipation and focus on it. For so many reasons, particularly Lindy West's profile. Yeah, and yeah, because it feels like she was at the kind of like peak of her cultural relevance when that came out. It's not not that she's become she's like faded away into into obscurity or anything since then, but like it definitely felt like a big moment. Exactly, because Shrill was so well received, and it was kind of a move from her being strictly a journalist into writing books. And the Ad Bryant, this was her kind of baby as well you know and what she did when she wasn't on SNL um and I think that kind of oh what else is Eddie Bryant doing and that being like an incredibly successful SNL spin-off but I I'm just so glad that a show like this exists and will always exist now because there aren't Mm. many shows at all for girls and women to look at and see bodies that are different from theirs. And I don't mean to say that in a reductive way of Shrill because it it is so much more than simply a show about body positivity. And you're right, I think it has developed and it becomes its own thing and gets into its own stride almost in step with Annie. Uh, Because I think the two, you know, as great as the first series is, the second and the third just become 
even more complex and interesting and spread out a little bit into sort of Annie's wider circle. But, you know, I had the Vicar of Dibley and Prince mm-hmm. Saunders, and of course that's because of the same woman being in the two of them. And, I mean, I'll always love Caroline Quentin for being Maddie Magellan in Jonathan Creek, but it's not quite the same. Ruth Jones as Nessa, Gavin and Stacey. But even then, that's a little bit played for jokes. But, you know, she's still a woman with a healthy sexuality. And she's not, you know, people respect her. I think that's what is generally missing is that sort of is that respect and I'm just glad that Shrill will hopefully be seen by lots of people to come you know and and it's a shame that it didn't get I think the appreciation that it deserved whilst it was on but I think that will come I think it's going to be something that will be a touchstone for a lot of people because I think it managed to do a lot of things subtly and with some really cracking laughs in it as well mm-hmm. and ed i believe you have for us this week something not entirely dissimilar from mm. world of shrill and it's a uh, uh, offbeat heroine shall we say yes so this week my uh, show and tell is muriel's wedding the uh, pj hogan directed comedy from uh, Australia from 1994, which I had uh, never seen uh, previously prior to uh, today, in fact, the day we were recording. Um, It's always been one of those movies that I thought, oh yeah, I'd I'd quite like to see it. I like some of PJ Hogan's other work. I really liked his uh, screenplay for The Dressmaker, which came out a couple of years ago. Um, Kind of side recommendation for that. I think people should check out the Josh Lynn Morehouse's The the Dressmaker. It's a lot of fun, Um, but it was uh, not not a movie I had seen, but I kind of like known about and thought, okay, that seems like something that I would like because I like Tony Collette a lot, who, who stars in it. You know, one of her breakthrough early roles. I love uh, Rachel Griffith, obviously, um, star of Six Feet Under, which we we have talked about in the past. And generally, I again, not to go back to kind of like the uh myopic nature of, of of french cinema but like i tend to like australian movies you know i tend to like the good ones that break through and, and that was one that broke through certainly um but i'd never got around to watching it so I, I decided uh to watch it today and my god this is like a perfect movie i think it's Just. it's so it's so so funny um tony collette uh plays uh, the titular Muriel, although Mariel, as uh, the movie goes along, and then Muriel again. Um, a young woman uh, in her early 20s, I believe, um, uh, Tony Clark was like 22 at the time the movie was, was shot, who lives at home with her family still. Uh, her dad's kind of a sort of local kind of political um, bigwig uh, of some sort who's involved in sort of shady dealings she desperately wants to get married because she views it as this kind of like this big transformative event that will allow her to kind of escape from the the kind of like doldrums of the life that she's in uh she at one point gets hold of a blank check this also came out the same year as the movie blank check so apparently it was a uh, a concept that was really great, gaining traction in 1994 which instead of cashing, she uses to go on 
uh, on holiday where basically chasing after these three terrible women that she like knew from school who she desperately wants to be friends with they uh, reject her so she ends up meeting Rachel Griffiths who was a, uh, she also went to school with but hadn't seen in a long time and like their friendship kind of forms much the backbone of of the movie and the tensions that then emerge um through various calamities that befall them and i just thought that like the movie it is it's just so so funny it's got a kind of a a brashness to it and an almost garishness to it that i i really really respond to i love you know it's set in in 1994 well, it's, it's filmed in 1994 i think the question of when it's set uh is you know kind of never really addressed by i assume around about the same time and i think it has that wonderful thing that you know people always make fun of australia for being like 10 years behind the times of you know america and i love that you know it's set in the 90s but everyone is dressed up in like garish fashion everyone has like a uh, garish 80s fashion everyone has huge hair everyone has like these like real bright pastel uh clothes and like it's all there's there's a certain trashiness to it that i find really really appealing and it really suits the heightened tone of the comedy um the performances are all very heightened as well you know there's a certain cartoonishness to it that i think works really really well when tied with the emotions being explored because it is a very emotional movie you know the, the movie is underpinned in multiple scenes by the music of abba uh, because muriel's a huge abba fan she's constantly listening to their music there's there's two very poignant scenes of her looking in the mirror whilst dancing queen plays which is used to kind of really great uh, dramatic effect and one of the big set piece comedic scenes of the movie is is uh tony collette and uh, uh, muriel and ronda tony collette and Rachel Griffiths' character performing Waterloo whilst the fight breaks out, which is is incredibly funny and, and great to watch. And I feel like that the music of ABBA kind of really matches the tone the movie's going for, where it is seen simultaneously very kind of that the, like there's a sheen to it, like it looks very bright. It has this kind of real kind of like bright comedy vibe to it, but underneath the surface, there's these like layers of sadness which i think is is the thing that has always made abba's music kind of like really resonate with me and i think is one of the reasons why they have you know transcended their era and continue to be as cultural touchstone for for generations and that's one of the things that i think the movie and like my, my favorite movies operate on those two levels where you you have like a really great time with all the laughs but you're drawn into the inner lives of these characters you genuinely feel tremendous affection for muriel even as she's constantly lying to everyone in her life about what's going on and coming up with a fake fiance named tim sims which i think is just a great like spur of the moment <laughs> uh name for someone to come up with as a fake fiance <laughs> um and yeah i just think it, it's one of those movies where as soon as it finished and particularly you know it has this great ending where they where uh Rhonda and muriel leave the town of pauper spit <laughs> where they grew up which i i didn't check to see if that's a real place in australia i would believe it um and they're driving in a cab to kind of go to the airport to fly back to sydney and they're just saying goodbye to everything whilst again abba is playing and there's just something uh just as soon as that ending was playing, I just kind of, oh, right, this is like maybe one of my favourite movies now because I think it just does everything it aims for so incredibly well. I'm so glad to hear that, Ed. 
and I would be concerned if you felt otherwise to be quite <laughs> because it is it is a perfect film it manages to weave in so many different points and characters without ever feeling jarring like mm. I think it's a real sort of genius stroke of writing that it encompasses all of these things and feels like life and a sort of it's kind of a um, buildings roman um as it is kind of muriel mariel muriel coming of age and entering the world and how her perspective changes and i remember watching it um not that long ago introducing my boyfriend to it and i said the thing about what makes Muriel's wedding so incredible is that the first third where you know she takes on the horrible girls and mm -hmm. her and Rhonda sing the ABBA medley together lesser films that would be the final moment of the film that would be her triumph yeah but we're just getting started and it manages to just weave together all of these different tones and I think at the time it kind of got unfairly marketed as a sort of zany chick flick where, mm -hmm. you know, like Muriel's obsession with Abba is just one aspect of her character. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of the marketing sort of reduced it to that. The South African swimming team, Tim Sims, it's just... <laughs> It's hilarious and lovely, and that Tony Collette was so young and manages to pull out like such a blinder, and that it gave us Rachel Griffiths as well. I just checked there quickly. Ed and Porpoise Spit isn't real, but it is based Aww. on a town where PJ Hogan grew up, which was called Tweed Heads, which <laughs> is not far off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that it manages to show kind of, I think one of my favorite moments is where towards the end and it's such a triumph as well in terms of again a very plausible female friendship mm. and, and one that's really joyful and real and Rhonda just gets so many like fantastic sassy lines but where Rhonda and her mum kind of have this acceptance because it's like Peter Hogan's not interested in saying that everyone in the world you know is a villain there's a lot of people who completely misunderstand each other and there are some people who are made for each other like Rhonda and Muriel so for Rhonda and her mum to just have this like moment of acceptance and love because there is a better situation for Rhonda waiting for her is just incredible and yeah just how it really is such a perfect example of your protagonist wanting something and needing something and then getting something so much better in a way that they would never expect and in a lot in a lot of tragic stuff as well mm. yeah i think uh, one of the things that really impressed me was just how much movie there is like you were saying about how the performance of the abba medley feels like it should be the climax and it's the end of act one essentially is is like just really indicative of just like how much stuff gets kind of like crammed into the movie 
and how well it handles these like really abrupt shifts, which do feel like, you know, moments in life where, you know, you're having a great time and then something absolutely horrible happens and, you know, it kind of comes out of nowhere. The one that I was really, the, 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 the one that kind of really keyed me into like, oh, I love this movie is it goes from the scene of Muriel having or trying to have sex with the guy who like, asks her out from the video store who mm. uh, in her words rents too many videos um which is just a great uh line that i certainly didn't uh seem like it could be directed toward me uh it wasn't something that made me think about my life where like they're you know on the couch he's trying to undo the zips of all of the like leather outfit outfit that she's wearing he accidentally unzips the couch and suddenly all of the the um wherever the little balls inside of the couch are start falling out and then the two guys that Rhonda is uh, having sex with run into the room and they're naked and uh, Muriel can't stop laughing because the whole scene is like just so funny and so absurd uh, and then Rhonda comes in she like falls down and she you know says uh, I can't feel my legs and then suddenly like the film kind of like veers into this completely other tack where there's this like genuinely kind of like harrowing thing that's happening with Rhonda which then Muriel kind of like works into her own kind of like fantasy uh again when she starts kind of like going to to wedding stores and trying on dresses and things like that and then using Rhonda's story like slightly altered version of it uh to justify people taking photos of her like I just loved how well it goes from these like really hilarious moments these really kind of like tragic and heartfelt ones and then how they are all kind of like the, the tragedy and the comedy are so intertwined so much in a way that is just so incredibly well done it's such a, a difficult thing to manage but i think the again the brashness the confidence of the movie like really carries it through and you know that that's just something i love to see in a movie is a movie that doesn't isn't content to kind of just be like one thing it's not just content to be this kind of like over the tops kind of like satire of sort of slightly shallow venal small town australian life it's it's trying to be like seven or eight different things and like doing them all really well and jumping between them and combining them in ways that are just like constantly interesting and really entertaining it's all killer no filler isn't it like mm-hmm. everything that you see is moving you forward and it's a long time ago when I first watched it but I genuinely didn't know what was going to happen next yeah and yet everything that did happen was that really satisfying like oh yeah I see I see where we are and even re-watching it I was like oh yeah I'd forgotten this bit and this bit and yeah it, it has a lot of heart but it's refreshingly lacking in sentimentality which I think the best of Australian cinema has to offer Mm, yeah it reminded me a lot of not coincidentally because like Bill Hunter's in both and they came out the same year but Priscilla Queen of the Desert which is another movie that's kind of like a big over-the-top fun comedy that has like real heart to it but never you know never feels like it's really pulling the heartstrings you know it, it earns its emotional response and um I think that's definitely true of, of Muriel's red wedding as well. Uh, and one thing I was really impressed by is it's just a movie of great faces um, in terms of like everyone who's cast in supporting roles has great reaction shots. Like 
I just found I was just cracking up during the scene at the titular wedding where uh, Muriel's walking down the aisle and Tony Collette's kind of got this kind of big grin on her face and then the um, South African swimmer, she's kind of like marrying so that he can become a citizen and go on the Olympic team, presumably. Um, it keeps cutting back to him and he's just got this look of absolute horror on his face and every time it cuts back, it just gets funnier and funnier and just like the looks on the faces of the people attending the wedding are really funny as well. Like there's a, a real... Uh, comic mind at work I think in in what PJ Hogan was doing both in you know the casting of actors for those small scenes to know exactly what he wanted but also making sure that he got the exact perfect reaction shots for them to to give you the sense of just how complete uh, a comedic world the, the film has like everyone in it feels like they fit into they're of a piece with this sort of like heartfelt but also kind of grotesque uh world that uh muriel uh lives in and that's the same with shrill and mm. so i mean different because completely bonkers but with um barb and star go to vista del mar mm. that i did think of barb and star i haven't seen barb and star but from what i've seen of like videos of it like that was something i thought i bet there's a lot of barb and star in this also like the Deirdre, the woman who's going out with, or, or like the mistress of Muriel's uh, dad, looks a ton like Kristen Wiig, so that also kind of popped into my head. Yes, there is a very distinct resemblance. I think the thing that works about all of these is that it's not like the protagonist is the odd one out. Mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. are, if anything, the slightly odder one out amongst a lot of odd people, which is what feels... Yeah which is what makes it feel real and compassionate instead of being like, look at this freak. It's more, this is someone trying to find their way in the world. And that the writing is so good that everyone feels real. And it's mm. not just the one person we have the view of, because I think that's where both Annie and Muriel, we are rooting for them, that they are anything but perfect. And they have such incredible hubris. And yet, we believe in the possibility of forgiveness as well mm. and yeah i just think just yeah top work all round. so we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of shot vs. shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week so i mentioned it briefly earlier but i am going to give a proper bit of spotlight to i want to be where the normal people are by rachel bloom of crazy ex-girlfriend this is her first book as far as I'm aware which is a collection of essays about essentially not being a very normal person and it covers things like her OCD her sort of early start in comedy relationships and it is just so completely in her voice that you do feel like she's talking to you directly to the point where I almost regret not having got it on audiobook because I think I might actually treat myself and have her say it to me as well. Yes, there is a musical in the middle. Um, it also has one of the most heartbreaking and affirming kind of afterward epilogues I've ever read. And I think brings it all really tightly together given where we all are in our current moment. And she's just incredibly funny. And I don't think I've ever read a book 
that has been so open in every sense. Like, I, I love her for quite how upfront she is about her bowel movements, for example. Like, mm-hmm. you wouldn't think that would be charming, but with her, it absolutely is. And it made me laugh. It made me cry. It's a winner. I want to be where the normal people are by Rachel Bloom. Cool. I'm going to, well, first, I'm going to second a recommendation that uh, you made a few weeks ago for Detransition Baby, which I read this week by uh, Tori Peters. Wonderful book. Absolutely worth checking out. Uh, No need to sit around worrying of just being an Instagram ally by (laughs) reading it as I was. Uh, It's just, yeah wonderful uh, incredible moving uh beautifully structured uh novel definitely worth uh checking out uh, i'm also going to recommend a documentary that i watched uh, the other day although i guess documentary slash personal essay called did you wonder who fired the gun which is by uh travis wilkerson came out in 2017 uh travis wilkerson is a filmmaker who's originally from alabama and in this he explores his own family history because his grandfather uh, who died not long after Travis Wilkerson was born in uh, the 1940s he shot and killed a black man and was never never suffered any consequences for it and so in light of you know everything that's going on that was going on in America around race in 2017 um, and you know has continued to go on and and in many ways gotten worse he explores that history and the broader history of race in alabama and in america he draws some startling parallels between uh his experiences and his grandfather's experience and the plot of to kill a mockingbird and also then kind of folds in stuff about um go go set a watchman which uh, come out around about the same time and the um like the 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 question of the image that america brings of itself and uh, the actuality of it and i just thought it was this really blistering uh documentary that there's lots of narration set over uh footage you know like footage of him driving around alabama where the image is tinted red so the sky is kind of like blood red it's very apocalyptic and it feels like um a movie about a personal reckoning, which uh, I found to be just like really compelling from uh, minute one. And yeah, absolutely uh, wonderful piece of work. It's on the Criterion channel here in the US and I think it's it's reasonably easy to find um, elsewhere or rent. Um, but yeah, so that's Did You Wonder Who Fired the Gun by Travis Wilkerson, a really great piece of work. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places, rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.